Hi, my name is Brand Sparks, and welcome to another episode of Center Nation. And today is a very special episode of our podcast. We actually have an interview episode today. We haven't done one of these in a while, and I'm excited about this episode. It's one that's weirdly been on my kind of list for a while because in 2019, I I read a book. It was right before COVID. I read a book of about editing. It was a book called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. And I was just enthralled by this book. And it was about the life and career of the film editor, Paul Hirsch. And Paul Hirsch wrote the book himself. And Paul really is a legend in his field. He has done so many legendary films that he has edited over his career. And we brought him on today to talk to him about his book, but also just about his career because he edited the film we're showing this week as our first Cinenation presents at the new art, the fam of the paradise. And it was one of Paul's earlier films from 1974 after it was actually his third feature film. I believe is what it was. And after that, Paul had a incredible career. He started off with Brian De Palma, as we'll talk about on this episode and with sisters and fan of paradise and Carrie and obsession. But then he took a little detour from Brian De Palma and made a little film called star Wars later became star Wars new hope and also the empire strikes back. But he did so many films after that. So many great films like footloose Ferris Bueller's day off planes, trains, and automobiles still magnolias falling down mission impossible mission impossible ghost protocol source code. So many great films uh, been nominated for an Oscar twice, one for Star Wars New Hope, along with Marsha Lucas and Richard Chu. And he's just an incredible editor, and we'll talk about more on this episode. So with this episode, again, with so many great films that Paul did, we couldn't talk about every single one, and we couldn't talk about every single one in depth. Like, I wish I would have asked more about Fan of Paradise, because it's what we're showing uh, this this week, and Paul's actually going to be there to give a book signing, hopefully, for his book a long time ago in a, in a cutting room far, far away, which is available on Amazon, Chicago Press Review. It's also Audible version as well. With a lot of these films, we talk about planes, trains, and automobiles a little bit and his work with John Hughes. We talk about his work with Herbert Ross. We talk about his work with Brian De Palma. We talk about his work with George Lucas because the book, again, like I said, has so many wonderful stories about his time in the film business. And it talks about editing as well and kind of some concepts of editing, but it's really just a wonderful storytelling book about the movies that he worked on because Paul is a really great storyteller in general. His editing is incredible, as we'll talk about on the show. It was just so exciting to kind of sit down and discuss with him about movies, also kind of movies that inspired him, as you'll as you'll listen to on the show. And when he came on, it was over Zoom and, and he had Darth Vader from the ending of Empire Strikes Back as his background. It was just kind of so wonderful to see that he's so he's so proud of his work and he should be because it's so incredible. And I again, so many great films that, you know, and love he did and his stamp is over all of them, as we'll discuss on this episode, because he has a very how I feel he has a very distinct style with his pace and editing and his kind of rhythm and musicality. Uh, and you'll, you'll notice that you'll notice that this week, if you come see fan of paradise, which is a wonderful chaotic horror comedy rock opera, but yeah, take a listen to this episode with Paul Hirsch. Again, a wonderful episode. I had such an incredible time going through it and I hope you enjoyed this interview with Paul Hirsch. Here we go. With reading your book again and rewatching a lot of your, we watched a lot of your movies. Wow. Uh, 
these past few days. And I actually, I started watching, or I started with a uh, high mom. As, were there any of them that you hadn't seen before or all of them you hadn't seen before? Hi, hi, hi mom. I'd never seen. That was one I really wanted to check out. I mean, to check out for a while. And I wanted to see, because being it's, it was your first feature, correct? Yes. So what, were, you, were you like 23, 24 is what it was for that? Three, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like, I honestly can't imagine having to edit that as your first feature because of all the different formats. Yeah. Was the thing. Yeah. Like, how, how like, what was it like kind of approaching that as your first feature? Well, I went into it completely confident based on nothing. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know. So when I started, I thought, okay, fine, great. And then, you know, I'd been a trailer editor before that. When you're cutting trailers, everything, you're just, you're cutting film that's already been cut. So here was the first time I was presented with dailies. And I thought, well, how do you know where to cut in? And how do you know where to cut out? I mean, you know, and, and uh, eventually I caught on. The notion of the film was these various, there was an objective film, the story of, of De Niro coming back from the war that was shot in 35. Then there was the home movie being made by the housewife mm -hmm. that was shot, I think, in 16 millimeter and was meant to look like eight millimeter. Okay. And then there was the black and white, uh, meant to be PBS kind of documentary on race in America. Uh, and uh, I think that was it, right? There was yeah, three. Yeah, those three stories. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the film format was expressive of, that was the conceit of the movie, was that we're seeing uh, these stories intertwining uh, in different, like everybody's making movies these days, even more so today, but that was this, we're talking about, you know, 69, basically like it came out in 70. So like 69 or so. Yeah. 69. I remember I was working on it when the guys landed on the moon. Oh, wow. Woodstock, Woodstock was that summer also, but, um, 69. So that's what 30 was 54 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So I remember it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were, and I remember you t in the book, you're talking about, you, you were editing, I think in the same, like kind of, editing suites as Woodstock, the documentary at the time, I think. Yeah. My brother was a, uh, uh, was producing Hi Mom. Mm -hmm. He had, uh, he had rented a big suite of offices, uh, on 80th street in New York. Um, and we were just in one room. He had an office and there was all this space. So, uh, he was, he had known, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and one of the one of the men who put on Woodstock uh, was, was somebody he knew, and um, they were cutting Woodstock across Broadway between 80th and 81st, I think, and they needed more space. Mm -hmm. So he made a deal to bring in. I don't think all the editing. They had some editors in another place, and. But uh, Scorsese and his assistant at the time, he was Scorsese was the editor. His assistant was Thelma Schoonmaker, who now then subsequently became his editor when he became a director and um, has won three Oscars or whatever. 
and they've stayed together. I know he, he she did she didn't do all of his movies early on because of like some union stuff, I believe. But then I think from like Raging Bull onward, she's basically done all of his movies. Yeah. Since then. Yeah. And with Hi Mom Two is also your first film with De Palma. Yeah. And what was I guess what was your first impression of him when you started working with him? Well, uh, he had, he was five years older than me. We had both gone to Columbia. So we had a certain, um, uh, similar background to a certain extent. And, uh, we just clicked. Our personalities just clicked. And I found him very funny <laughs> and, uh, full of ideas and, and, uh, and energy. And, um, you know, I was, uh, it was the beginning of a long relationship. Yeah. I mean, with something like Hi Mom, I know with like Dionysus as well afterwards, like he seemed like a very ambitious director at a very young age. Yeah. Brian's got, you know, extraordinary visual ideas. And you look at movies today and very few of them are, are terribly visual. I, I, you know, I went to see Oppenheimer and I thought it's wonderful that this picture got made and it was, you know, a serious movie for grownups. Mm hmm. Uh, and which is wonderful that it got made, and it's even more wonderful and, and remarkable that it got seen. Uh, but it's not terribly visual at all. I mean, there, there are very few visual ideas in it. There was, there is one that I remember. I mean, of course, the explosion of the bomb, but, uh, but you know, visually, it's it's mostly a, a dialogue-heavy movie, which is mostly people sitting in rooms testifying or or questioning or, you know, so the idea of seeing it in IMAX just strikes me as absurd because this, what are you looking at? A close up 50 <laughs> feet high, you know? So I don't know, but I'm very happy that it got made. I'm very happy. Yeah. Uh, I find I was not bored, you know, uh, yeah. even though there's no narrative that you can really follow terribly much, which is the way he does his pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's not a lot of visual ideas. I mean, if you look at Brian's movies, like Dress to Kill, you know, the shoes under the curtain, you, you know, and they turn out to be empty shoes and the killer is somewhere else. You yeah. Know, there's a lot of visual ideas, you know. Uh, even in, in uh, I just saw the new uh, Mission Impossible. It was filled with visual ideas, you know. Uh, that's what I'd want to see in IMAX. But, um, you know, like when they say, we got a car for you, and he goes and you see this, sports car and the room yep. they have for him is the little Fiat 500 behind it, you know, yeah. I mean that that's thinking visually thinking of as a director with visual ideas. And, uh, I don't know. It wasn't visual to me. Yeah. With, with the newest mission impossible, it's like, I, it felt very much like, cause Tom Cruise loves silent movies is the thing. And it feels like, like that gag with the car feels like a very like Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin gag that they would, that they would do um, with the kind of the reveal of everything. Perhaps. I mean, I'm not a scholar, so I don't really know, <laughs> but, but I was grateful that there was humor in it. Yes. I mean, so many of these big movies leave the humor out and it's a fatal mistake. I, you know, as I watched the star Wars movies over the years, the humor went out of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a big, I, for me, it's a big loss. Uh, it became very self-serious and, and, um, you know, without three PO in the first movie, it would have died. I mean, 
he's the comic relief and and uh, and even you know r2 you know gets short circuit you know electrocuted he falls into you know an empire falls into the swamp and uh there, there was humor there was gag there were gags and yeah um you need that in a movie you know in, in something like mission impossible you need humor well, it's funny too. You bring up Mission Impossible because I rewatched Mission Impossible for the first time in several years, and the original one, the original one, yeah, that y'all did. So many visual ideas. I agree, and like I, it was it was interesting coming back to it after watching Dead Reckoning Part One because I feel like they take a lot from what y'all did with the first Mission Impossible, like even with the kind of train climax and and kind of the pacing of it. Um, it all feels like a hearkening back to that, that one that y'all did. Yeah, he does. He did circle back and pick up some, you know, pick up a stitch here and there. He did. And like talking about visual ideas in that one too. Like, there's the scene when, when uh, in the first one, when Ethan Hunt and Kit Kit Rich are talking, and when Hunt's kind of finding out what's happening, yeah. um, y'all go to like the Dutch angles, and yeah. that kind of becomes a reoccurring theme whenever whenever something comes a little bit off we you go you repeat back to that kind of visual idea that Ethan's realizing that I like where he describes the people around the room and you flat you cut back to where they were in the embassy mm-hmm. uh that's a very visual idea you know and then of course the aquarium and they're they're sitting in a restaurant that's essentially an aquarium yeah called the aquarium and with that one just I know we're kind of hopping around here but with that one was there because I'm reading up on it, researching it with like the original cast of the TV show was very like upset by the kind of left turn it makes with, with Phillips or with a, with John Voight's character. Phelps. Phelps. Thank you. Um, was there like, I don't know, was, was, were you all aware that you guys were making such as a drastic change that could affect people, like people's perception of it, if that makes sense? Well, we, yeah, I mean, Brian was exploiting his role as a good guy on the TV show, making him and disguising him as mm-hmm. a, you think he's still the good guy, and then it turns out to be the bad guy. So, of course, uh, the actor who's James Arness's brother, uh, I can't remember his name anymore. Uh, Peter, Gra- Peter Graves in the show. Peter Graves. He's mm-hmm. James Arness's brother. You ever okay. hear of James Arness? I haven't. Let's see, hold on. James Arness was the star of Gunsmoke, oh. which, was, which was on TV for about 100 years. <laughs> yes. The most watched television show for for years and years. He was a huge star. It's funny, you never heard of him. He was upset about it, but yeah. I don't think anyone else was. So. Actors have a skewed you know, perspective on the projects. Yeah. I mean, Mark Hamill is upset, apparently, that we cut a, a scene of his from... from uh, an early scene of his from Star Wars. It made the picture much better. Was that the like opening stuff of when you guys took out Luke before the droids get to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he, did, he didn't like you guys cut that out or cut one of those scenes out. Yeah. He's upset that when we cut the scene where he's talking to Biggs, mm-hmm. uh, didn't need it. Yeah. And the picture, you know I mean? There's still, it's been his whole life and he, you know, he's complaining about how it started out. I mean, come on. Uh, He's, he, he, have you heard him complain about that recently? Is the thing I read it somewhere. <laughs> That's funny. It's like, He's, yeah, I still think it should have been diff- different. 
They should have had that scene in there. It just, you know, it gets my, you know, explains my motivation. Yeah, but I think, I mean, with cutting it out makes sense. It works because it's it's like you don't need it. You like you want to get to the point when like the the story like actually interferes with his life is what makes more sense. Not him just like observing it is the thing. Also, too, like kind of in that period, what I love about your films that you edit, there really is like a like a musicality to it, like a really great rhythm to it all. Either when you have musical moments or you kind of can craft musical moments out of like through montage or something. Uh And you do it with Phantom, you do it with Footloose, you do it with Ferris Bueller, Ray. I mean, I love the opening of uh, Secret of My Success with the New York stuff and kind of all those montages. Um, Do you enjoy cutting with music or for music or is it more exciting for you than doing just dialogue scenes? Oh, yeah, I love doing it. I mean, uh, you know, when I was young and, you know, thinner and more agile and had more energy, Uh the thing, I I, I didn't really find myself for a long time through my childhood and teenage years and college, and I didn't really know, you know, I was kind of lost. I didn't know what I would wind up doing and... um, the one thing that I really felt I was good at and that was generally acknowledged was that I was a terrific dancer. Mm. I used to dance my butt off and <laughs> and loved it. And, mm. uh, and to me, cutting film to music is like dancing to the music. Um, you, you know, the, there's a connection between choreography and film editing. Choreography is the organization of movement over a three-dimensional space against music. And film editing can can be, in these instances, the organization of movement in a two-dimensional plane against music over time. You know? So uh, there's a strong connection between dance and, um, and film editing. Uh, somebody once said that uh, film music is ballet music written for choreography that's already been done hmm. so that the, the director and the editor create the dance. And now the composer comes in, has to write the music for the dance that the director and editor have created. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, and you've worked with some great composers over your career. Um, what, yeah. what, what is your, like when doing, when editing a movie, what is your relationship with the composer a lot of the time? A lot of the time, I get the, I get them the job. <laughs> I mean, a number of times I've gotten people hired as the composer on a film. I know you talk about that. Talk about in your book with Steel Magnolias, kind of that kind of debacle with it just not feeling right, and then you kind of recommending someone else for it. Yeah, and and Bernard Herrmann on the first film, you know, it was my my idea to put Benny's music against. Mm-hmm. Uh, some scenes in our film and that led to his being hired. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about that. Cause uh, one film I didn't watch, I hadn't watched before this was obsession and his score is really beautiful Fantastic. in that movie. Fantastic. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Um, and like, what was your experience working with Bernard Herrmann um, through sisters and obsession? Um, well, it's all in the book. <laughs> you don't have to tell all over again, but uh, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll ask this, like what, 
what made you want to put Herman's music with sisters? Like what kind of, well, that's a good question. Um, what made me want to do it, the, the picture was an independent production and the producer, Ed Pressman, who passed away recently, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Ed was trying to raise more money while we were shooting the film and he needed to raise, you know, funds. And Brian asked me to prepare uh, a scene for uh, these potential backers to watch. And he suggested the murder sequence. And I knew that coming from trailers as I had, there was a certain, you know, there was always some emphasis on presenting your cut to the client. So when you present some, some of, your, of your work, you want to sell it. Mm -hmm. You know, you want, to, you want to make it as good as you possibly can. And I knew I couldn't show this murder sequence without music. It, it cried out for music. So I happened to be at home the night before, and I was watching Psycho. And I, and I had some concerns about Sisters because uh, it was a small film. It was low budget, and the shots were not terribly... Uh, like, Hi Mom has a lot of handheld stuff, and there's a lot of movement, and, and uh, Sisters was shot more conventionally. And uh, I was afraid that um, it, it needed, needed something. Well, anyway, I was watching Psycho, and mm -hmm. I noticed the scene where uh, Janet Lee is being followed by the patrol, patrolman. Mm -hmm. And the music is incredibly tense. I mean, the scene is incredibly tense. And I, I was watching it analytically for the first time, and I realized there were only three setups in the scene. There's a close-up of Janet Lee driving. Mm -hmm. There was her point of view out the out the uh, front through the windshield, mm -hmm. and there was her point of view of the um, rear view mirror, the rear view mirror, and you could see the cop car in the rear view mirror, and that was it. Mm -hmm. it. Was her face, the road, the mirror, her face, the road, the mirror, and the music is going dum 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 da 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 da. I mean, it's, and you're sitting there and you're, and then I, I reached up and I turned off the sound and the tension went away. It didn't play. So I thought, oh, so it's the music. So I went on and I got the score from Psycho and I laid it into the, this murder sequence that uh, we were showing to the potential backers. So, and I also, I felt that the original plan had been to use a guy named Michael Small, who had written the score to Clute. Mm. And uh, the score to Clute is sort of a small jazz combo, yeah. which was sort of the, that was the sort of standard of the day. Uh, orchestral scores with big, it sort of went out in the early 50s. Yeah. Uh, or the mid fifties and they were replaced by uh, either jazz bands or small or, you know, like mm -hmm. that was the heyday of, of uh, Henry Mancini. Yeah. He was brilliant. I'm not taking anything yeah. away from Mancini, but this jazzy uh, kind of, that, that was what the, the style was in those days. And I felt that a small jazz combo would, would sort of underscore how small our production was. 
thought that an orchestral score would make it seem like a bigger movie than it actually was. So that's that's what led me to uh, to Benny. I said he does great work um, for Sisters and for Obsession. Oh, he's brilliant. He's yeah, he's brilliant. There's one movie he did very early on that I love called a uh, uh, Hangover Square. Yeah, with um, it, it's it, like not Hanover Square. H- Hangover Square. So Hangover. it's yeah, Hangover Square, and it's um, I think I saw it. It's a uh, Laird Cragar. If he was like a character actor, and he plays like a he plays a composer is what he what he does, and he essentially kind of has it's it's could be an interesting early De Palma film, but it's like he has lapses in memory where he like commits murders and is not aware of it basically, um, and people are kind of trying to track down who's doing these murders, and it's like building up to Guy Fox night because it's in England. But uh, his score is just amazing. It's like his third movie, I think, like not long after Citizen Kane. Um, and I know Stephen Sondheim, the Broadway composer, said it was a big influence on Sweeney Todd oh. musical. Yeah. Oh. And but there's like this beautiful like like ending concerto that he does that's just amazing. Um, and it's kind of blending with the visuals and the and the score of it. It's it's, it's great. I just watched, just watched the, the beginning of the uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth last night. I've never just seen to, that. Really? I haven't. I'll put it on my Benny list. Benny's score is brilliant. He, the opening, uh, the main title, he has all the instruments playing in the lowest octave of their register. So everything's out. It sounds like you're going down to the center of the Earth. Mm. It's really, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's on, it was on my list for a bit. So let me re-add it. But yeah, in your book, I want to plug your book here too. Uh, a long time ago in this cutting room far, far away. I have it right here. Um, like I said, it's available on Amazon. Also, Chicago Press Review and Audible as well. There we go. We'll be get, we'll be giving away a, a free copy at the screening of Fan Paradise on August 11th. Um, Paul's going to sign it for us. So... It's a wonderful book. Like I said, I've gone through it twice. Uh, once when it came out and then basically just now for this podcast. And you have such incredible stories throughout it. Just like talking about hiring Bernard Herrmann and I didn't hire him. Oh, I'm sorry. You you recommended him, I mean. Sorry, you recommended him or mentioned him to De Palma. More than mentioned him. <laughs> I petitioned for him. Petitioned for him. Um, but you have a great line line in your book. You talk about how a lot of editors tend to form a mono- want to form a monogamous relationship with someone as or form a, with a director, and you like to kind of sleep around. Was the thing and work with different directors? Did you do that because you enjoyed with working with like different styles, or at that point when you started doing it, did you feel it helped you grow as an editor? Well, when you become a professional editor, uh, you have to. You know, this is the way you make your living. Mm-hmm. There are times when you get out of sync with a particular director, and I like to keep busy. Partly because uh, it kept me sane, and partly because it put food on the table, you know. So uh, you got to work, and sometimes the directors you've worked with before don't have anything going. So you look around, you find somebody else, and you work with them, and then you get out. Then the director you worked with before is starting a picture, and you're not available. Yeah. So you get out of sync, and and that's what happens. So um, sometimes it turns out great, 
Mm -hmm. Sometimes it turns out horrible, but uh, it's not as if I could just, you know, sit back and, and choose what I wanted to work on. I mean, it was all, this is how I made my living. Yeah. You know? I'm not a trust fund baby or anything, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Did it push you in some way, I guess, to, to like, because I'm trying to go off kind of what you talked about, that you liked working with different sensibilities. And I guess, was that way to go outside your comfort zone early on when you started working? Or was it just to, like you said, pay the, like, to, to keep working, basically? Well, I mean, you know, when you're starting out, you're ambitious, you want to get onto good projects and so forth. And, you know, when I... I really wanted to work on Star Wars from everything I'd heard about it. And then it happened. Yeah. And I discovered that I'd only ever worked for Brian De Palma before. George was a different director. He was a different person and a different sensibility. And I really liked the picture. I thought this is a terrific picture. And, and you know, it's not something that Brian would ever have made. Uh, it's just not his bag, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then that happened again when I, um, um, I moved to L.A. In, in the early 80s, and I started working with Herb Ross. Herbert, uh, again, completely different sensibility, and uh, we did some really good pictures together. Um, so, And then John Hughes, you know, again, different sensibility. And uh, it's just it's interesting. It's stimulating um, working with people who approach the job differently. Yeah, yeah. And you bring up a lot of the directors I was going to mention real quick um, with Herbert Rosh talked about, I think in the book, you mentioned that he was the best like actors director you worked with. Yeah. I, I have to look up someday to see how many actors in his films were nominated for Oscars. I think it's a huge number. I remember one year um, he, uh, I think he had four, four actors nominated in one year in two different pictures. Yeah, let's see. Cause like goodbye girl was a big one. Cause that was like Dreyfus won for that. Yeah. Um, and Marsha Mason, I think was, was nominated. I think. Yeah. I think she was nominated. Didn't she win too? She, no? she was nominated for best actress and Quinn Cummings was nominated for best supporting actress, I guess as the daughter. Who was uh, Quinn Cummings. I, I assume she plays the daughter of Marsha. Yeah. Of Marsha Mason and the goodbye girl. And the, the turning point was that year. Also. It, it, it was correct. So Anne Bancroft was nominated, and Shirley MacLaine, I think. Neither of them won. Yeah, Bancroft, MacLaine, uh, Mikhail, I'm going to butcher the name, uh, Barishnikov, um, and Leslie Brown. So four just from that, so seven? In one year. In one year. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. But what, I mean, for you as an editor, what made you think, like classify him as a great actor's director? as like viewing it from the footage you're looking through? Well, that's an interesting question because I had this idea from, you know, working with Brian, we would move scenes around, mm -hmm. uh, especially in, in uh, uh, had I done Blowout? Yeah, I think I'd already done Blowout, I think. Blowout yeah. was... Yeah, it was 80. Yeah. It came out 81, yeah. Right, so in Blowout, we restructured a lot. Oh, wow. We, and so I'm working on my first film with Herbert and... Uh, I said, Herbert, what if we put this scene uh, somewhere else? He says, try it. So I tried it, and it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was that the attitude of the actor was incorrect. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the, um, the psychological state of the character 
was much more developed and um, something I had to take into consideration that mm-hmm. sort of absent in more genre type films, that this was a deeper characterization and it was not, and it was more, the performance was specifically uh, targeted at that moment in the story. So it wasn't easy to take that and put it somewhere else, you know? Interesting. It's interesting too, because with foot, with footloose, I know. And with the palm movies, you have John Lithgow on both those. Yeah. And he's very different. <laughs> John's a brilliant actor. He can play any. He really, because I, 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 I rewatched footloose yesterday and I really think he's the heart of that movie is the thing because uh-huh. his performance is amazing. Um, what I've always felt is like he's kind of a a man going through a crisis of faith in the middle of a teen drama uh-huh. is the thing. And I just and I think he gives a, a phenomenal performance in it. Yeah. He can play anything. He's, <laughs> he's a wonderful actor and a swell person, too. Is he? Yeah. Lovely guy. That's great to hear. He's he's always someone I've loved watching um, throughout the years and just seeing what he can like I said, what he can do differently. Like I said, blowout. It's like it's again. He does something so kind of nuanced and footloose, and then he just plays this really crazed character and and blowout. Yeah, just um, amazing. And also going off kind of the acting stuff too. You've worked with you've seen different actors throughout all your films, and they've talked about a lot in your book. Um, still Magnolias, as you said, no one talks about as much, but it's really a, a great, like with Ross directing him, a great, like actor heavy movie. Yes. Um, and I know, I guess what was like kind of tackling that where it was a more play like structure. Cause I don't know if you've really done a play or a play adaptation before. Uh, I think that was the first picture I did that was based on a play. Mm-hmm. And Herbert sent me to see it in New York and there's this moment where you're crying and then suddenly you burst out in laughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an extraordinary uh, moment on the stage. And I thought, well, if we can pull that off in the movie, we'll be okay. <laughs> and, and we did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's the, the, in fact, Sally Fields even says, uh, laughter through tears. Oh, I don't know I think it's Dolly. Dolly says, laughter, th- laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. Mm-hmm which is, you know, unnecessary, but uh, Robert Harling, the, the playwright, put it in there. We left it in. It's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. It's one, as someone who's from the South, yeah. uh, uh, that play has done a lot uh, in high school theater and college theater kind of around the South is the thing. Uh-huh. Um, I was like, a, I was not in it, but I was, because I, it's all female cast in the, in the play version. Uh, I did like the lighting design for it is what it was in high school. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it is, a, I mean, the movie's a, a really a faithful adaptation of the play. You just expand the world. Some and add more characters is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then you also mentioned John Hughes as directors you worked with. And I've heard so many stories about Hughes over the years of he's very steadfast in his writing, but sometimes can be, I don't know if impulsive is the right word in other decisions, but can kind of change his mind later on with certain things. Kind of a, a temperamental genius. I think some might say like as an editor, what was it like working or how, how did you get to work with him? I guess is the thing on Ferris. 
my agent called and said, John uh, is looking for an editor for this movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I said, they're going to change the title, right? <laughs> so, well, no, I don't know. That's the title. They're calling it now. I said, okay. He said he had a great experience working with Dee Dee Allen on The Breakfast Club. Mm -hmm. And he only wants to work with New York editors. And you're from New York, so I thought I'd put your name up. So we went, and I went, and I met him, and and uh, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And were, were you on? Were you on set? Uh, were, you, were you in Chicago at that for that one? Right when you were editing it, I was. I had to uh, after about a month. I had to go back to LA because my son broke his leg. And oh no! Wife, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> I hope so. I hope he was fine after all these years. Chicago's a great city. I love being there. I've never been. I, I've always wanted to go. I, I'm wearing a Blues Brothers shirt right now. I love kind of all the movies of, of that um, location. Um, it's a place I've always wanted to visit. Yeah. On Source Code, the producer said, uh, we're sending a helicopter to Chicago to shoot shots of the train. You know, uh, we got him for the whole day. You got any suggestions for, uh, you know, for getting shots? So I sent them the opening of, not the opening, I sent them the uh, the shots of Chicago when the kids drive in after they get slown out of high school. Uh -huh. you know, they, yeah. Ferris and, and Cameron get slown out of the school and they drive to the city and all these shots of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I sent them that and uh, they shot essentially the same stuff except that now Chicago had a lot of new buildings Yeah, similar footage and that's what we use for the opening of Source Code and I, and I really like Source Code that's one I want, I want to revisit because it's uh, I remember when it came out I, I loved the kind of Groundhog Day kind of action thriller like element to it I was that was the pitch. <laughs> Groundhog Day is a thriller, but it, it's hey, it worked. It it worked. Um, but with Ferris, I think you mentioned the original cut was like three hours, is what it was. Two forty five. Two forty five, and I'd always read that he preferred like not rewriting scripts because he wanted to get it all on film so he could like rewrite it in the edit. Yeah. Was that kind of yes? How you both did for Ferris and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Because I know that was even longer. Yeah, that was three hours and forty-five minutes. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't rewrite his films, and he wouldn't let anyone else rewrite them either. And when he got the cutting, he was ruthless. He'd throw stuff out, like get rid of it. So you know, John, it's a lot easier to do this when it's on the page. <laughs> so he's he was the opposite of of Herb Ross. He talked about how, like, with Steel Magnolias at one point, that he shot a scene that he wanted to get in there like for the production cost, but you guys didn't think it worked that well, but you had to keep it because you spent money on it. And John's the absolute, you know, we can just toss it out. We don't need it. Well, it's a totally different situation. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the last reel of steel Magnolias was added. I think the play doesn't go, go past cemetery scene. Yeah. Um, but then I think the last line of the play is life goes on. And the Herbert felt uh, it would be good to illustrate how life goes on. Mm -hmm. See that Dolly now has two shops instead of one. And Carol um, has her baby, you know, is having a baby. And, and uh, 
we see uh, Shirley MacLaine, and you know, and it sort of felt, sort of demonstrated how life goes on. And I thought it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a conversation with Georges Delarue, and I said, "Can you write a, a music, an alternate music cue that would take us from the end of the cemetery sequence right into the end credits?" He says, yeah, of course, I can do that. So he did, and he re- he recorded it. And I did a uh, an alternate version for Herbert, and I showed it to him. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, this is what I think you should do. And he looked at it, and he said, well, you're right, but I can't do it. I said, I don't understand. He said, well, I went to Ray Stark, the producer of the film. Mm-hmm. I begged him for the money to do the final reel. I can't go back to him now and say, remember that money I asked you for? We didn't need to spend it. I can't do it. So that was... That was that? <laughs> that was the reason that it was... I, mean, I think it would have been a better picture if we cut it shorter. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting to see. What I, mean, I, I know the Easter ending so well, so that would be kind of interesting to see how it ends on a more bittersweet no note i guess you know it's not in the play no it's not in the play if when we did it in high school i remember it's like sally field's character uh like turns i think how he did it she turns on the radio says her last line then walks out of dolly's shop is what it is and that's the end of the play like you said um because in the play it's all there is no cemetery it's just all at the at the shop at the shop yeah yeah I, I want did that did, I don't know if you did you guys test that one? Um, we didn't test it without the scene at the okay. end. Okay, okay. That was just a a private conversation between me and Herbert. Yeah. And then real quick on test screenings, as we talked about before, you guys had a lot of tests on planes, trains, and automobiles, and I won't have you go into it all because you do very in depth in your book. And for those who want to learn more about that, do it there. But the one big thing you talk about is kind of the. Steve Martin's kind of close up in the train yeah. um, at the end. And you talked about how Steve kind of, Steve kind of adds a little kind of quizzical or puzzling look on his face. And you were able to use that to kind of make a really drastic change in the yeah. edit. Yeah. And, but with that moment, like how quickly did you have to make that decision to make that big change? Oh, well, we were under the gun. I mean, you know, it wasn't just, I, I don't remember. I mean, it's all sort of a fog. Mm-hmm. John and, and I and other editors and uh, Steve was involved, I think. And oh, okay. everybody sort of had their brain caps on or what are the thinking caps on. Uh, we came up with this. The, the scene as originally as originally written was getting bad laughs. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, we can't go with that. We have to, you know. And then it occurred to me, it occurred to somebody, I forget who it was, to uh, to have instead of it's impossible to explain without yeah, yeah, yeah. too much time on it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it was not an obvious solution, and. It, it came at the eleventh hour and it saved our So, and and now when you watch it, it feels like it, it was always meant to be that in a way. It's like when you watch it now, like you can't tell you're missing something. Well, I, I once read a description of Mozart's music, 
mm-hmm. I said his music is a combination of surprise and inevitability. That your first reaction is, oh, and then you go, well, of course. <laughs> it was always so, meant to be that way. <laughs> so I liked that, and mm-hmm. I aspire to that in my own work. Mm-hmm. I want the cuts to be surprising, and then, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Had to be that way. So I succeeded in this instance that you felt that it always was meant to be. Yeah, I mean, it really is kind of the perfect um, combination of all of your strengths with your editing and kind of John's writing, but also Steve's performance. But kind of last big thing, we've talked about him. We, we've talked briefly about Star Wars. And yeah. I'd be uh, not a great podcast host, but don't ask more about Star Wars um, on this podcast. But you got this job. You actually talk about you got your job off of a was it a, a meeting Marsha Lucas and George Lucas at a, a premiere party, a fan of the paradise, correct? Yeah, it was a screening. Yeah. Yeah. And quickly, again, Fan of Paradise, what I love about that movie, what you do, the ending, um, while so chaotic, your editing is so on point there because you never lose sight of what's happening, if that makes sense. Like, we're always aware of where everyone's at in the space, and it's never confusing in 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 an ending that could get confusing is a thing. But I love that. And then I think going into Star Wars, it shows... Fam kind of shows how you can balance all the different pieces. Um, but with A New Hope, I know you worked with two different editors. Yeah. And what was it like working with multiple editors on a project? Well, it's a little delicate, you know, because working with different sensibilities and uh, we're all being very uh, careful not to step on anybody's toes. I was the last editor hired. Uh, there were four editors on the film. I was the last one hired. Um, and eventually was the only editor on the film. But while we were working together, because of so much work, it, it was just too much for a single person. Yeah. Um, while we were working together, we were all very respectful of each other's sensibilities, and we gave each other opportunities to look at the scenes before we showed them to George. So in case there was something in there that people want to change, we mm-hmm. would do that for, you know, um, it was very, uh, it was a collaboration in the best sense of the word. Yeah. And you mentioned here today and also in the book, you talked about how you read, you heard about the movie and wanted, wanted to work on it. Um, the movie at the time is so different than what's coming out. What attracted you to want to work on this? I had seen a book of production stills from from the set and the images I saw pictures of uh Dark Vader and the stormtroopers and the Jawas and uh Ben Kenobi and the sand crawler and the land speeder and you know the props and the costumes and it was fantastic I mean it was just uh I thought, wow, I'd really love to work on this picture. I mean, it, yeah, it must have been, like I said, so unique for the time because it's like he's harkening back to like kind of old like sci-fi films like that, but it is so I, – I, I just recently – they did a screening at the same theater we did in Fan of Paradise. They did A New Hope, Empire, and Return of the Jedi. And I remember rewatching A New Hope, and I was like, 
God, I, I, my mind would have been blown seeing this at that point in time because it's just so radically different than what was coming out. And with your editing, I know I, Empire, I think, is a movie that I love A New Hope, but Empire, I think, is just leaps and bounds better in terms of like everything improves. And I think your editing is just so incredible in that film with, again, how you pace everything. Um, what was it like coming? What was the pressure like coming into Empire after A New Hope? I felt no pressure at all. I was excited. It was, okay. Uh, the world had waited three had to wait three years for the sequel, so uh, it was the most awaited film, and and uh, it was tremendous privilege to be working on it. I was excited. I didn't feel any pressure. Well, that's good. I was, I was certain it was going to be a hit when I saw Yoda. But oh boy, wait till they see this! <laughs> really blows my mind. Uh huh. No, it does. It does. And like again, you it, again those sequels. Yeah, <laughs> with the dart, with the the which I again I love that sequence of the final kind of kind of lightsaber duel, like uh-huh. it's it's shot wonderfully. Um, the again the pay, the editing is amazing, um, and it is it's like it's a very uh, I think you mentioned the book it's a very kind of downbeat ending than what a new hope is ends this very upbeat ending. That was very very bold choice by John. Uh, very risky, uh, you know, most producers and studio people would have made a carbon copy of the first film, uh, the big battle at the end, and, you know, and it took a lot of guts to to do something not that. Yeah. And with that one, because George wasn't directing it, what was it like working with him as a producer versus him as a writer-director with the first one? Or was there a difference? Oh, yeah. I mean... Uh, he was he was preoccupied at that point with building his ranch, <laughs> so I didn't see him all that much. Uh, but you know, he he dropped in at key moments. Um, you know, it was great. We were tied together forever. Yeah, and I know you, he mentioned you mentioned in the book, and he said how you you saved the first one when you came in. Um, but I, I really, he said, he said that. Yes, he said that. I won't put words in your mouth. <laughs> he said that. Um, but yeah, then again, I said, I think you're the boldest of the movie of Empire is great. But I think, again, the boldest of your editing is great. Just the way everything's paced with that one. Um, and then one very small story you talk about in the book. And again, I don't want to spoil that much this book because there's so much in here that I love. Um, but you talk about cutting the trailer for Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And and first off, you talked about you started your career doing trailers. Yeah. What was it like coming back and did you cut the trailer or did you come up with the idea for the trailer? I wrote I wrote it and I cut it and I um I got Harrison to do the uh, voiceover. And his voice is amazing. I, I watched it last night. His voice is amazing for that. Well, I told him to play it like a newsboy announcing an extra. <laughs> afternoon extra you know extra extra read all about it you know it was supposed to be energetic and they called me from from the states and they said who's that actor we want to use him for the for the trailer i said it's harrison I said who harrison ford one of the stars of the movie I said, oh oh yeah yeah 
And it's 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 funny because like I read the comments of the of that trailer online and they're just like, it blows your mind when you find out that Harrison Ford does the voice for this. Like, wait, Harrison does the voice for this because it's just so radically different than his normal voice is the thing. Yeah, I, I had him play it like an old, you know, the idea was to make him like a 30s trailer because mm-hmm. that was the the inspiration for the for the movie it was old serials because they, they almost play like newsreels like 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 coming to the soon to the theater near you type thing like it's very like in your face with the with the voiceover george loved it like studio hated it and they did. <laughs> well i i i think i think it's great i, th- it's I think funny. it's funny to me that it's that it's out there now i mean that's sort of remarkable but yeah it's thought, still it's still there that people that people know about I thought, that i thought it was gone you know i thought it was it's it's on the Star Wars YouTube page on their official page. They released it. Crazy. Um, yeah. So the work's still out there. Um, again, I don't want to hold you too long because again, uh, I don't want to go through all your book. As I said, there's so many great stories. Um, we've used your book several times, referencing your book in episodes we've done. We we talked about in Blowout. Um, we talked about in Family of the Paradise. I know we did a John Hughes episode. We mentioned it there. So it's a really great book for editing, but also just a book about filmmaking and kind of move stories about making movies. And so I'm so happy people can go find it now and you'd be able to put it down uh, in written form is the thing. And I said, it's available on Amazon, Chicago press review uh, and available on audible. Also available in French and in Chinese. Oh, is it? Yes. Okay. And, and what was, I guess with the book, it's like what inspired you to write the book? I was alone on, on location. I was bored and, and nothing to do. And I thought I should, I'd been telling these stories for years. I thought I should write these stories down. That was nice. And then that's how it started. And how long was the process for it? Uh, I started in 1999 and I completed the first draft in 2017. Oh, wow. It was 18 years. And did you, I think I read this, but did you watch any movies when rewriting it, or did you just kind of go from back from memory? Well, I probably should have, but uh, I just relied on my memory. Well, it it I think it works. I think your memory is is on point with everything, especially after rewatching a lot of these. Um, you break down the scenes incredibly well um, if you're just basing off memory. Thank you. Was there a section that was the hardest to look back on for you in any way? Not really. I mean, no, I mean, my, I had a lot of unhappy experiences in my career. Not a lot. I had a few. I've been extraordinarily lucky. And when I first met the literary agent, she said to me, no score settling. I thought that was, that was good advice. They refer, they, it was tempting to, to get back at some people who had been rude to me. No, what I love about you talking about that, it's like you really are very you praise everyone, even, even people that might've had an issue with you're like, I don't know what they're going through and I don't want to pass judgment on them because this didn't work out. Um, you, you do a great job of, of not settling scores and making sure we're aware that we're, we're just making movies. It's not life or death yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. But yes, I'm, I, I appreciate you so much for coming on. A lot of different places today, which you might not have been expecting. I apologize for that. It's okay. But yeah, I'm excited to see you at the Family Paradise screening on August 11th, the new art at 1030. 
for those who don't have your tickets, get them now. Um, there will be a book signing with Paul. So bring your books of a long time ago in, in a cutting room far, far away. He'll sign them. Um, it's gonna be a great experience, but Paul, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your career, talking about all your movies and your book. Um, I truly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I had such a great time with Paul. Like I said, I wish we would have discussed more about star Wars and more about family paradise and more about mission impossible, mission Impossible: ghost protocol, planes, trains, automobiles, Ferris Bueller. We talk about some of the stuff later. We've talked about Ferris Bueller a little bit and planes, trains, and automobiles on our John Hughes episode. We go more in depth on kind of the editing process that he talks about of kind of the change they made after a preview screening with this, with the, uh, the ending between John Candy and Steve Martin. We talk a little bit about Ferris Bueller as well and kind of the changes they had there. And we talk a little bit about him and with blowout as well that he did with Brian De Palma. We talk a little bit about him and fan of paradise episode, but yeah, it's, it's so many great stories from his book and I hope you enjoy this. Hopefully you can come out to the fan of paradise screening on August 11th this week at 10 30 PM. If you listen to this like months later, years later, well, I'm sorry you missed it, but it was hopefully a great time, but if not still go buy his book a long time ago in a cutting room, far, far away. It's just a wonderful piece of film history. And again, kind of an era too, that we don't really see as much with everything not being cut on film. And Paul really goes, breaks down kind of the cutting on film on like a movie Ola or Steinbeck and all these different things. And it's just kind of a wonderful experience to see this perspective um, from movie making because a lot of times you see directors doing kind of memoirs like this and I think Paul's book along with like Walter Murch's book uh, and the blink of an eye with editing and uh, when the cutting when the shooting stops the cutting begins another book that's really great on editing and Paul's is up there too I think is a, a book that should be on your shelf especially if you're a Star Wars fan if you're a Brian De Palma fan if you're a John Hughes fan it's all kind of a, a, a book that should be like a big text for you and yeah again i can't speak highly enough you're probably wondering why brain why i keep talking about it? it's it paul is such a wonderful legendary figure we we're so lucky to have him on our show today so i hope you enjoyed it and i hope you follow us on socials uh give us a review and hopefully we can do more interviews like this because it's exciting for me and i hope it's exciting for you so thank you all for supporting us thank you all for listening hope you listen to more episodes soon bye